Please open the word of God with me, please, to 1 Peter 5. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. But I want us to read verses 1 through 5 also because uh, they're, they're all connected. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, it would be Homer and Dale and David Emerson and Ron Miller and myself, in Tangled Bible Fellowship, as your fellow elder. Now, Paul, Peter could pull rank here. This guy saw the resurrected Christ. He was the uh, leader among equals among the apostles. But he just very uh, humbly refers to himself as your fellow elder. Homer's special brother, Ron's special brother. He, he's been an elder over a church too, and he is as he writes this. And also, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed to us through the resurrection of Christ. Here's the command to Homer or Ron or David or Dale and myself. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Do what's best. Look for the overall interest of the church. It's not about you. Exercising oversight in that way, not under compulsion, not being forced to, like you're doing God or anybody else a favor, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, not for financial or other benefit, but with eagerness, with enthusiasm, and not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. You're not a dictator. Human authority is always very very limited, and human authority figures must always temper their expression of authority with a lot of grace and uh, a lot of kindness. So when the sheep, excuse me, verse 3, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge as you're a dictator or very difficult to deal with, my way or the highway kind of thing, but proving to be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears at the rapture, uh, elders who serve well will receive special recommend, special commendation, I should say. They'll receive, among other things, a special medal like at the unfading crown of glory. Now moving from elders to younger men in the church who have the great enthusiasm and passion, but not necessarily the life experience the elders do, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Uh, don't be too big for your britches. Respect their um, life experience and their uh, leadership and their influence. And all of you, all the non-elders, men and women, young and old, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, that's where we start today, really, in light of verses 1 through 5, all y'all in the local church, elders and non-elders, men, women, children, and adults, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. The world hates you, but you'll be exalted forever in the presence of God that he may exalt you and vindicate you in your faith at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The football season is in full swing and so I think the title for the message today uh, fits the time of the year. All Christians, and I mean Amanda Birch and Phyllis Davis and Blanche Britton and Katie Davis and Pam Cox and Steve uh, Steve uh, Skinner, that's to your last name, and, uh, and uh, Stan Heath, not just Brad and James and the elders. All Christians can and should be spiritual quarterbacks, not spiritual running backs, and we'll explain what that means in a minute. But let's pray for our teachability to the Word and also for those who protect and serve like our peace officers and our firefighters and our active military. Okay, 
So, uh, Steve, uh, pray for us in that direction, okay? Thank you, Steve. Uh, you know, last week we said from uh, verse 5 that spiritual enemy number one is our, our self-centered pride. It's deep within each one of us. The antidote to that, of course, is Christ-centered humility. And we're going to see that theme of humility, which really tempers this whole fifth chapter again today. And closely related to humility, of course, is the virtue of patience. And that brings us to our attempt to fully warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Um, These aren't intended to be necessarily funny, but maybe ironic. Top five things every TBFer needs to know about patience. Okay, Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom found in woman, never found in man. Can I get an amen on that? Patience is something we admire in the driver behind us, but never in the driver ahead of us. We don't like it when they drive slow in front of us, do we? Patience puts up with people we'd like to put down. That's good. Patience is the key to many important things. After all, we get chickens by hatching eggs, not by smashing eggs. And then finally, I didn't say these were funny. Okay, They're just thought-provoking. Patience means you take time to count down before you blast off. Now, on the third Sunday of each month, rather than having sharing and and prayer in here for everybody, except for those who want to do something else, including young adult class. Uh, All the adults will meet in here, in theory, in elders groups. And so the idea here is uh, Ron and my group will meet there, and Homer and um, Dales will meet in that corner, and then David meets at an unadvertised secret tunnel under the church. In the the Dickinson room, next between the uh, uh, Maxine's office and the youth room, but uh, some weeks, depending on how many people stay, we just kind of all merge in the auditorium. So we just kind of play it by ear. But uh, if you've got something pressing, you got to go. I get that. But uh, in theory, this puts us in slightly smaller groups for a little bit more intimate sharing and prayer. And we're talking about casting your your burdens on the Lord. Uh, one way you do that is by sharing them with uh, believers who you know are going to support you and pray for you. So we encourage you to stay for that if you can. We are coming to the end of our study of 1 Peter, and let me remind you the purpose statement, and most biblical books have an explicit purpose statement somewhere. Sometimes it's the very beginning of a book. Sometimes it's at the end. In this case, it's right in the middle. book of Ephesians has it right in the middle, too. Sometimes it's right in the middle. And here's the overall literary purpose for this book. And this is my paraphrase of those two verses. As spiritual aliens, Mike is just a spiritual alien. This world is not his home. And he's a short-timer, and I, I know he's going to live to be at least 120 because he lives a very clean life. Uh, he is in good shape, and he roots for the OSU Cowboys, win or lose. And that's got to be good for your soul. So as uh, aliens and short-timers on earth, Christians, born-again believers who've dared to trust Jesus Christ for salvation, should not be controlled by our emotions or our feelings or our lust patterns, um, but we should consistently live our faith centered on Jesus Christ, the one who saved us, so that unbelievers who might slander us because we are believers in Jesus Christ will ultimately see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately 
glorify God by coming to him in faith. That's the purpose statement. That controls everything else in the book. Uh, under that, we have two basic parts. We've got kind of living faith under fire 101 and living your faith under fire 102. The original readers of this book were persecuted for their faith. They'd been forced to leave their homes and their uh, cultures to live in what we would call all over Turkey today. They left to Syria to go to Turkey, which even today is a tough trip. And we're in the second part of this uh, book that emphasizes submission, where you put yourself under authority voluntarily as a function of your submission to God, and suffering. And it is coming. And sometimes we suffer because of our faith in Christ, and sometimes we suffer just because we live in a fallen world and we're finite and frail. We make mistakes or just bad things happen to a lot of people that have nothing to do with our moral choices. It's just the, the veil we live in. And I would say the take-home from this book overall, if you remember nothing else from First Peter, I think if you could remember the thrust of this, uh, you're not ever going to have enough information, no matter how tempting it is, Clay, to legitimately second-guess God. And I think rather than trying to do that, we need to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason, earthly reasons, to keep trusting and obeying the Lord. That's basically what the book is saying. And now today we come to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. All Christians, put your name in the blank if you're a believer, can and should be spiritual quarterbacks, not running backs. And you know he's writing this book to Christians. This is not an evangelistic tract about how to be saved or how to know you're saved. It's a book written to Linda Keeney as a believer. She's trusted that Jesus Christ died for her sins, rose again from the dead, the resurrected Savior is the only one who can give you eternal life. And it comes not through your works or you being a good Sunday school attender or a nice person. It comes through uh, God's grace, through faith in Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works. You've got nothing to brag about in front of God for your salvation. It's all about the merits and the work of the risen Christ who died for our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, two believers, four believers, you are going to suffer in this world, so tighten your chin strap and tighten your seat belt, and let's think about it, and let's do it the right way. And in verses 6 and 7, we've got a general command and a specific command. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, such that you submit properly to human authority and you submit properly to God's authority even when things are happening that you don't like and can't understand. And he's going to exalt you at the proper time. It's all going to work out in the end. The end may go past your funeral, but it's all going to work out in the end. God's going to line it all up so you're going to be able to rejoice in all things for all eternity. And then that's the, kind of the general command. And then verse 7 gives a specific uh, expression of that. In other words, one thing you need to do is rather than doubting, pouting, and dropping outing when bad things happen to you, is cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I always love that, love that statement. Uh, look at verse 6 again. Therefore, oh my goodness, every time in Scripture you see a therefore, Amanda, you got to look back and see what it's there for. And that's why we read verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 when we're only looking at 6 and 7 because he's going back to the immediate context. Uh, one major way that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God as a believer 
is to humble ourselves and our local church under the leadership of the legitimate authorities uh, that lead us and do so from the heart. Uh, one way we uh, do this is by being uh, on time with a good attitude and submit to the person we report to at our job. Uh, one way we do this is show up on practice uh, for practice on time, swimming practice. If you're, you know, Andrew's been the regional coach of the year two times in a row as a swim coach. Now, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor because Andrew was an outstanding uh, high school baseball player and he wanted to be the world's greatest baseball coach and he may still get those opportunities. But uh, the Lord worked things out in ways we didn't totally understand and moved him from the diamond to the pool. And then he became like an outstanding swim coach. And he can't even swim. No, I, I think he can. I think he can swim. Uh, but I think the key is recruiting really fast swimmers on that. But that's, that's just me. Um, but yeah, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, we humble ourselves, whether we're elders or non-elders, by doing the dynamics of verses 1 through 5 for younger men and ultimately for everybody in the church. Notice uh, in verse 5, he talks to younger men first. But he says, uh, all of you in the church, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. We talked about humility last week, and we said uh, the, the Greek word tapinos means an appropriate recognition of my physical and spiritual weaknesses and limitations, and therefore my constant need for God's grace, and also for grace in other people. And I know you're nodding, yeah, Brad, you need to have an appropriate recognition of your physical and spiritual weaknesses and limitations. Well, when I say my, I mean your, really, okay? This is an appropriate recognition of one's, a person's physical and spiritual weaknesses. We've all got a breaking point. Some things that would break you in five minutes, I could take for years, and some things that break me in two seconds, you could take for ten years. So you got to be very careful before you self-righteously, like Job's friends, picket somebody uh, on things like that because uh, the example I use is uh, I think I remember Pam doing this but as a young pastor I was 35 years old and had really good looks and a lot of hair and in fact it was way down to my my belt you remember you know and tattoos and stuff and uh, not that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff but anyway I was 35 years old I had a kid in second grade in kindergarten and Pam was one of the moms who came in and said I want you to pray for me Pastor Brad because uh, Kirk's graduating or Jimmy's graduating or Linda's graduating from high school. And it's really a tough time for me. And I, I, of course, I didn't say, are you kidding? I mean, what do you expect? You feed them for 18 years, they graduate from high school, which I never thought was that big of a uh, accomplishment. You have bigger, some people think whatever they did in high school is the most important thing they ever did. One of my best friends in high school, every time we get together, all he wants to do is talk about his high school career. And I'm, you know, that's fine. I, I had did a few things in high school, but who cares? You know, but anyway, as a young 35-year-old pastor, of course I would pray for him, but I thought, man, I mean, what do these ladies expect? You know, 18 years after, I mean, do you want us to pray they don't graduate? They flunk out? What do you want? And and so I really kind of, in my mind, I thought, that's no big deal until my oldest kid graduated. That was one traumatic year. And not that he was, you know, at the bars and honky-tonks. He was doing fine spiritually, but it just, I couldn't believe it. It just went by so fast. And he's he's 18 years old. And then I've told this story, but, you know, they do a lot of cool things the days right around graduation. And this was low tech. I think it was still a slide projector. But we had this big thing for everybody, the parents and the graduates. And we went in the auditorium, and they had this slideshow of all the kids. 
and Debbie had given them a picture of Jamie with his little baseball cap on, his bat on his shoulder. He's three years old. And I, I had not seen that in, in 18 years. And I boo-hooed in Duncan High School Auditorium looking at that picture. And I mean, so much so people were looking at, is he having a heart attack or what? I mean, and you know what? I just realized, man, I used to think, it's usually women that would tell me that it's a tough time for them. I thought, man, you know, get a grip. I mean, how could you possibly let that affect you? And then I got there and went, oh, now I understand what they were talking about. I can't ask her to pray for me. After, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, she'd think I'm a weenie or something, but man. So, you know, I think one thing about life experience is you kind of get tempered a little bit maybe because you realize some of the stuff you thought was nothing actually is a big deal for not just other people, but even for you, and you can kind of relate to that. So that's humility. Now, something I didn't emphasize enough last week is humility is not a self-loathing where you hate yourself. Uh, it's kind of a balance between that and self-centeredness. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less and getting sure Christ, making sure Christ is right in the middle of that pie chart of your life, and that frees you up. I think, to serve and care for other people, even if they're dealing with issues that aren't a big deal for you, it's important to them. Help them if you can. Pray for them. Uh, believers who honor, or excuse me, who humble themselves now, who submit to God by being humble in their connections with other people now, will be honored by God in the future. And the Lord himself teaches this on the way for the last week in Jerusalem. He says, uh, the disciples are always arguing about which is going to be the greatest, who's the greatest, most spiritual um, giant among the twelve. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself now will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself uh, now will be ex- exalted. So we submit to human authorities and relate graciously to those we're over by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Elders are not to lord it over Elders are supposed to be kind and have some wise perspective and some tact as they deal with issues in the church because they know they're under the lordship of Christ. Uh, younger men are supposed to submit and respect the leadership and really everybody in the church of the elders because they realize that under God, God has put them in your life, in your local church. Those kind of dynamics we talked about. But let me say this key principle again. We submit to authorities we are under, and we graciously relate to those uh, we are over as authority figures ourselves when we have that position by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I don't think anybody has a problem if that's the way it operates, but it's hard to do that, isn't it? So when we're an employee or when we're a child or when we're part of a local church, we are to submit to our employer, to our parents, to the leaders of our church as a function of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, again, when you're talking about human authority, it's very important to emphasize that um, although the general principle is Christians are to submit to human authority, there's an exception. We submit to human authority until or unless it's a direct sin to submit to human authority. So a husband who's using his wife as a punching bag, that's not legitimate authority. You do not submit to that. That's a crime and you need to process that pronto and not deal with that and not blame yourself for that. Even if you've done something foolish and, and terrible, that's not appropriate. Um, we always submit to legitimate human authority until or unless it's a sin, until or unless it's a sin to do so. But let's flip it to the other side. What if 
you're a pastor and an elder in a church, or you're a husband, or you're a parent, or you're a professor at a university, you've got some authority over students and your kids and your church and your, your family and your wife. When we are an employer or supervisor over others, or a parent over children, or an elder overseeing the function of TBF, say, we are to relate graciously by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, even as we exercise our authority. So it's not just what we do, although that's tempered by that, but how we do it. And that's very important. And that's in, in my using authority, you know, I'm not an angry person. I don't get angry. I get very frustrated sometimes. But I don't get angry that often. But uh, it's not only what I do, but it's kind of how I do some of this when I'm uh, re- interacting with a student's assignment or dealing with certain things, even here or in my family and other places. And the weird thing is, as difficult it is, we talk about how difficult it is to submit, right, uh, to authority figures. In some ways, it's even trickier to have authority as a Christian and to exercise it with self-control and with wisdom and tact, humbling yourself even though you outrank your children or the people at work you're over or your students at Cameron University. That's, in many ways, tougher, more difficult for most of us. We've got teachers from middle school and uh, somebody works at the elementary school today. And uh, uh, in that situation, uh, you know, Andrew, I've told some of the students uh, who complain about things I make them do at Cameron, I'll say, you think taking a class at college level is hard? Try teaching one. I gotta grade all the papers, you know? I mean, it's ridiculous. I was, you know, I have 25 people in the communication class, and to be fair, I give them 100 questions on the midterm, 100 on the, on the final. When they first, here's 100 questions, they, get, they go, oh, 100 questions! And I say, you know what? Think of it this way. I'm, I'm helping you out here, because I've gotta compose 100 questions. It'd be easier for me to compose 5 questions. But let's say hypothetically, would you rather have 5 questions? Because I could pick 5 questions, and let's say you get none of them correct. What do you make on your midterm? Okay, let me take those five questions and add 95. And you miss the same five. What do you make? You make zero, you make 95. Five questions is not enough of a sample size to be fair. I don't do it because it's easy for me, because it's easier, better for you. So guess what? You know, Talking about being mildly irritated, they whine about that. I said, we've got 25 students here. You've got to do the math for them nowadays, too, on the, on the board. You have 25 students, 100 questions per student. How many questions do I have to grade? 2,500 questions. i got to grade. I don't put it through a scanner. I want to know what everybody's missing, and if they all miss the same question, I figure it's probably my fault. You know, Stuff like that. So um, be nice to those in authority over you, because it's not always easy. I, I'm not somebody who just craves power at all, but I'm in some places in my life I've got a certain amount of authority, and I find it uh, I find it a burden actually, as opposed to something I just revel in. Oh, good, I can get all of Debbie's preferences at the church now because I'm the pastor. Don't think like that. She didn't think like that, and I wouldn't do that. I mean, I think it would be um, a very bad thing to do. But uh, even when you're in the right with students and, and things like that, it can be difficult. But uh, I think I've learned some lessons in my old age here about uh, using authority. I want to talk about two things, especially I've I've seen that that have worked um, as a, a parent, especially uh, when I parented two teenage boys. That was probably the trickiest time. 
and uh, as a professor at Cameron, as a pastor and elder at this church, uh, I found two basic principles. Number one, don't make major decisions about your students, your kids, or the church when you're feeling ill. If you have a migraine coming on, not a good time to... Uh, Having to make a big decision may bring a migraine on, but that's not a good time to make a decision. You're not 100% there. And number two, don't discipline your children when you're feeling angry or don't reprimand your students. I mean, I've had, I, I could write a book about bad excuses college students will give you. And, you know, I, I used to get so offended by some of those, and now I'm thinking some of them are actually legit, as bizarre as they are. And others are just kind of afraid to make the effort because they're afraid they're going to fail. And I don't want to uh, permit that. I want to enable that. I want to force them uh, by keeping a bridge going where if they, they want to learn at all, we can actually teach them something. So I've learned a couple lessons there. Let me go over those two things real quickly on major decisions. Major decisions in your life require wisdom and perspective. And when you're feeling ill, perspective is probably going to be out of kilter. So don't buy a house or a bass boat, guys, when you're not feeling good. And always make sure your wife's on board before, literally, on board the bass boat and on, on board on the purchase. On leadership and discipline of children uh, or uh, being a professor at Cameron University, uh, leadership requires wisdom and self-control, a lot of self-control. And so when you're feeling angry, it's really hard to retain your self-control. So uh, major decisions, here's, here's what happened with us, and you know, we've been married 44 years, and so it must be working. Uh, when we first got married in 1973, Debbie and I agreed that I would make all the major decisions, and that she would make all the minor decisions. And this really worked out great, but the problem is, after 44 years, we've never had a major decision come up yet. <laughs> but if one does, I'm in charge. So that's worked out great for us so far. And <laughs> on the, uh, it's a long way to go for a bad joke. Um, on leadership and discipline of children, what, when you get to be in the grandparent stage, it's so wonderful to be an expert on all things child rearing because you don't have to do it anymore, you know. So I, I hope I don't sound like the Pope up here or something, but, uh, uh, let me start here. Uh, let me say something really controversial, but make sure you understand what I'm saying. The Bible not only permits physical discipline when it's appropriate, but it actually endorses it. But we're talking about appropriate physical discipline. We're not talking about child abuse. We're not talking about assault. We're not talking about abuse. Uh, spare the rod, spoil the child is a true principle. But the rod wasn't a piece of rebar or a big hard branch. It was a flexible piece of wood off of a tree, a sapling, that had a little flexibility to it. And it would cause enough pain to make a point. It had about the impact of a fly swatter. My mother didn't get a rod, but boy, she wore out her fly swatter. And look how I look good, how good I turned out, right? Um, it, but it's not a club. It's not a bat. It's not something that can do serious damage. And if whatever you're using to use for your physical discipline in the home leaves marks, leaves bruises, break, breaks things, leaves holes in the wall, you are way out of bounds. There's no excuse for that. Uh, it's serious sin. Uh, in Colossians, we're told, we're, we, Paul kind of assumes all other factors equal. Fathers wouldn't punt discipline to the mom. He would protect the mom, let her be the good cop. Um, 
and he would be the leadership leader of the discipline brigade. And the word of God says, fathers, in the way you discipline, do not embitter your children. What you're doing just makes them angrier as opposed to causing some contrition and correction. You're probably using the wrong approach. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged, demoralized. You don't want to demoralize. This kid is on your team. Uh, you, you know, and they've got a lifetime contract with you, you know, and that never stops. That's very, very important. Now, also, well, that's very controversial now because saying that uh, physical discipline can be appropriate, even endorsed by God, sounds very politically incorrect and most dangerous. But, and this is your, your call as a parent, but that kind of flash water or light tapping, uh, not on bare skin, but God gave them a large area, you know what I'm talking about, with a lot of padding, but you don't go skin on skin and leave marks or bruises. How, how dare you do that? That's horrible. You do it on, when they got their clothes on. And I found out with Jamie, he, you know, that diaper, those, those diapers, just, that's dirty pool. It's really hard, you know. And I know Dr. Dobson says, don't use your hand because you, you want your hand to be something they want to come to. And, and I didn't have enough patience not to use my hand on Jamie a few times as a little kid. But I, I get that. But whatever you're using has got to have enough flexibility. It's just, it just makes a loud noise. The noise is important and it gives them enough of a sting. It gets their attention. And that's all you need. And really, that's only effective for a young child through 9, 10, 11 years old. You can figure out, you know your kid better than I do. But after that, physical discipline is not going to work. It's not going to be effective. And you need to use more sophisticated techniques, uh, rewards, punishments, taking away privileges, that kind of thing. But the point is, even when you've got a legitimate situation to use physical corporal punishment, you need tremendous self-control. And if you can't control your anger, you're going to have to back away for 30 minutes or an hour, even though it's, you don't really want to separate the offense from the punishment too awful long. But you cannot be doing that in anger because uh, I only got licks once from a coach in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was extremely angry with me, and he hit me so hard. <laughs> That's the way I remember it. But I didn't press charges. But uh, nowadays he would be in jail, right? But I never did that again. At a baseball practice. <laughs> uh, uh, but I won't go there. But anyway, um, don't discipline your kids when you're angry. Uh, and Brad, don't grade student papers when you're angry. <laughs> this never turns out well. Because uh, when you're angry, when we're angry, we tend to work out our worst impulses. So process your anger first. And that's humbling yourself under the a mighty hand of God will do that. And then deal with the issue or delegate it to someone else. Um, now, for me as a 64-year-old man, I won't go into detail about this because it would make somebody look bad, not in the church, but in this town, and I don't want to do that to you. But last Friday afternoon, I got very angry because of something that I had set something up uh, months ago, and I checked on it, and they had no record of me setting it up. And they acted like I'm lying to them. I'd set this up. And I really needed this appointment. Uh, okay, it was with a doctor. And anyway, <laughs> I set it up in June right after Debbie left, right before I went to Mexico. And I was given an appointment at the end of September. And I've been talking to lots of people. I've got some things that need to get checked out. Uh, and so I called Friday to make sure I knew the time, which is actually still two weeks away from the appointment. They had no record of it. They acted like, how dare you say you had an appointment? Uh, how, you know, 
And I said, well, so you're saying you had an appointment. Well, there's no appointment. And she kind of gave me a lecture. And the problem was I knew I was talking today about humility and controlling your temper. So I said, yeah, I can't just you know aim and fire at this lady on the phone. Plus, it's not her fault. She's not the one who lost it. And so I prayed. One, I was going to say, as a 64-year-old man, uh, David, I just counted to 10 before I said anything. She just kept going on at a long pause. I just counted to 10, and that was all I needed to kind of calmly let her know I was very disappointed and I thought it was not a good thing. And you might work up the chain of command because I know th- mistakes happen and it wasn't your fault, but this isn't ideal. And then she offered me an appointment a month in the future, which I took, but I said, I'm going to try to find somebody else, and if I can, I'll call you and let you know I'm not coming. <laughs> so I did that one pretty well, partly knowing I was going to have to talk about it tonight or this morning. Uh, so I'm 64 years old, but for the average 24-year-old man who's really angry, maybe at his boss and wants to quit, like tonight when you probably shouldn't, or wants to discipline his ch- children uh, too severely, you might need to walk around the block for 30 minutes. You might need to do push-ups until you can't do any push-ups anymore. Go out and pull some weeds. Uh, uh, do whatever you got to do. Figure it out. Uh, I was thinking the other day, too, uh, that if you just listen to some soothing praise music, I mean, it'd be hard for me to go to uh, my, go, get on Spotify and find uh, Michael Card's Known by the Scars and listen to that song and a couple times. It would be hard for you to be so angry at your boss you want to spit in his face and quit and show him how terrible he is or uh, beat your kid to a pulp because you're angry at them or whatever like that. So when we're angry, we tend to work on our wor- work out our worst impulses in uh, relating to your boss or your kids or your neighbor or your mother-in-law, whatever it is, causes you to get really angry. You need to calm down before you do that. But don't discipline your kids. Don't make major decisions when you're not feeling well or you're, you're very angry. Now, at this point, I hope this has been very convicting for many of you. Uh, I can always hope. Uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Brad, you said you were going to talk about spiritual quarterbacks. Well, let's go to that, okay? That's the general command, verse 6. Now, verse 7 is the specific command and let's translate this this way. Casting all your anxieties on him, that word can be translated throwing or passing. Quarterbacks throw. Mason Rudolph, almost 500 yards passing yesterday in the first half. Can you believe that? First seven drives in a row, we scored touchdowns. That's six points, plus you get a chance to get another point. It's incredible, yeah. Um, love it. So that's why I'm saying quarterbacks, because that word uh, that the King James and also uh, New American Standard says is casting, can mean to throw or to pass. And so that's, that's where I'm getting this, uh, com, uh, this quarterback analogy. Now, what he's saying here is very similar to something said in Psalm 5522, uh, Cast thy burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. So that may be in Peter's mind. He's, I'm, not, I'm just quite sure he knew that passage. But we'll look at it uh, as it's uh, teed up here. Casting all your anxiety, throwing or passing all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is so neat, Michael. The original says, uh, casting, throwing, passing all your anxiety on him because it matters to him about you. Is that incredible? I mean, it brings it out. Dr. Digg, that brings it out. It matters to him about you. He, he really 
is interested in you. And I know sometimes our, our current uh, generation of praise songs get uh, criticized by certain theologians because it's all me, me, me centered. And yet when you get to the end of Nahum and you read that in the millennium that God's going to delight in being with you. <laughs> it's like, he really likes us. He really likes Michael Birch that much. He's, God's going to delight. And the first time you read that, you say, that must be a trans- mistranslation. I must say, we're going to delight being with him. No, it says he's going to delight being with you. Jesus at the Last Supper says, I've really been looking forward to having this last meal with you guys before I suffer. Like He's really looking forward to having the time together. You can't believe it. He knows how messed up these guys are, and he loves them anyway. And you've got here, he cares for you. That's pretty vanilla. It matters to him about you, Eric. It really matters to God about you. He really, really has you in a good way in his sights, and especially when you're suffering. So this verse describes another way in which believers are to apply the, the command of verse 6. Therefore, it goes back, but then he immediately says, uh, humble yourself under the mind of God. God will take care of all things in the end. And in the meanwhile, cast your anxieties, the problem, things you're dealing with that cause you anxiety on him because it matters to him about you. And that's where I get this idea that you don't want to be a running back with your burdens. You want to be a quarterback. Spiritual running backs, these are my categories, fail to see the Lord's presence in the midst of their storms. And to the extent they do think about God, they tend to be angry at him and doubt, pout, and obsessively fret over their problems. Uh, and maybe to the point of being passive about doing appropriate actions toward the problems or worshiping the problems. That's all they can see. Spiritual quarterbacks, in contrast to running backs here, pass their cares to the Lord. And it may be submitting to your boss. It may be... Um, Disciplining a kid, uh, your first grade class or your middle school class or whatever your, whatever groups you're over have legitimate authority over. Uh, spiritual quarterbacks pass their cares to the Lord. They commit to recognize the Lord's presence in the midst of their storms. And they do look to the Lord while at the same time, while they're trusting God's purposes and his presence and his will to be worked out, even in the worst of their circumstances, they still express intelligent concern and take appropriate action. We're not saying that you trust the Lord, Chris, and then you just stop thinking about uh, some big bill that's overdue or some big medical issue. When uh, when uh, uh, Jeff and uh, Sonia found out about Katie's situation and she's diabetic, they didn't say, well, we'll just pray about it. It'll be fine. That kid needs, di- needs uh, insulin and, and needs a whole different approach to eating, you know? And mom and dad are fully on board with that. And that's not a lack of trust that goes together. It's not one or the other. It's both and, right? Uh, you pray to God for a good trip down to Texas, and then you buckle your seatbelt. It's not one or the other. Uh, I remember Nehemiah, when they're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and there's all kinds of, uh, today we call them terrorists around Jerusalem, trying to keep it from happening. Uh, they said, so we prayed to God, and we set a guard. It wasn't one or the other. They prayed to God, protect us from these bad guys, and then we're going to have to organize it. So, Dale, you got, Dale's going to go to sleep early because he works hard. So we're going to put him on the last shift. So Brad, who's a night owl, Brad, you work from dark until midnight, and then uh, David can do anything. So you, David, you work from midnight to four. You're going to be the guard there. And then Dale wakes up probably at four to get in the anyway. So, Dale, you're from four 
And we'll give you a two-hour shift because you've got to go work 14 hours in the oil field. So we set a guard. We prayed, but we also set a guard. It wasn't, we'll set a guard. we got a good guard. God, please help the guards. Uh, it wasn't one or the other. It was both and. And so hear me on that. When we're passing our concerns to the Lord, it doesn't mean we fail to do what we can. We express intelligent concern, take appropriate action, and that's very important. Now, practically speaking, Anthony, this may help you. As an old guy talking to you, how do you throw your anxieties onto the Lord? I think you have to remind yourself you're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God because, boy, it's easy to second-guess God when bad things are happening around you. I get that. But you have to doubt your doubts, okay? Pastor, I have doubts. Every time somebody tells me they have doubts, I say, doubt them. Doubt your doubts. If you can doubt God's goodness, doubt your doubts about God's goodness, right? That's the way you deal with that. Uh, I I think I came up with this saying. I know people talk about being at the end of the rope, but I don't remember stealing this from anybody. When you feel like you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot in faith and hold on. And that's, that saying has resonated with a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people go through some really tough stuff, and they've said that's, that's helped them that thought. I think prayer is a huge part of this whole process, obviously. And my definition of prayer isn't, a to-do list for God, because we're so important to him, he's going to do exactly what we tell him to do. He's too smart to give us everything we ask for, and his purposes are a lot bigger than anything and everything we can see. So prayer is a grace channel of communication through which believers seek and submit to God's will, knowing that God uses our prayers as part of the process of working out his will. So it is significant we pray, and prayer does change things, but it doesn't over... Uh, rule God's purposes is in fact part of the purposes uh, such that we stay connected with God especially when we got have these uh, unbelievable uh, inexplicable kind of circumstances uh, another picture is any of this helping you yet Anthony uh, as far as casting your anxieties on the Lord uh, a picture that, of this that helps me is uh, and we've had kind of a mild summer even though it's been uh, warm some of the time but I want you to, Eric, picture yourself, it's 104 degrees in August, and you're not in Colorado or Alaska, you're brave enough to actually live in Duncan, Oklahoma, and we thank you for that. Uh, don't leave, please. But uh, yeah, so it's 104 degrees, and you're standing at the edge of, a, edge of a pool, and you're hot and you're miserable, and on top of that, you've got this big backpack, and it weighs about 110 pounds, and that, which is a lot of weight to carry. I would, I'm not sure I could even do that anymore, but on a backpack situation. So it's 104 degrees, uh, it's hot and miserable, you got this big burden on your back, and you could be angry at God or the weatherman or the pastor or the church, whatever you're going to get mad at. You know, people get mad when they're disappointed. Or you could cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain you. You could pass uh, your anxiety on him. And the picture I see is me standing on the edge of a pool, with this big heavy thing that's weighing me down and just leaning back until I'm totally immersed in the pool. The waters of the pool is, is God's presence and God's will. And here's the thing. You don't just cast, take off your backpack and throw it in the pool. You throw it in as it's still on you. It doesn't go away necessarily. But now you've put your problem and you put yourself right where it needs to be fully immersed in the will of God. And for some reason, so, so I may have heard a sermon, a sermon where some guy used that illustration, but for some reason, 
it just came to me. I don't remember any outside source, but that just speaks to me when I've got a big thing. I just picture myself standing in a pool, like Olga's pool. They got a pool, right? So, uh, so if you want to actually practice this, you can actually use their pool. But uh, uh, that I need a picture like that to help me trigger that to kind of get the response that the word's calling here for me. So just lean your lean back all the way. With and I, I don't like heights. I don't like falling, but I can just fall into a pool. It's kind of a cool experience. Now, don't do this at the Dead Sea. What happens at the Dead Sea, Homer? It's so salty you can't float. Okay, Jason. This is not the only reason you should go to Israel with me sometime. But one afternoon, we'll go to the Dead Sea, and you just kind of put your swimsuit on, and you back into this thing. And once you get, what, waist high, a little bit higher, you you lean back, and you bob like a cork. You you float, don't you? And most your, not much of your body even gets in the water once you start floating. It just holds you up. And uh, that's actually a terrible... Uh, Segway, because I'm not talking about bobbing. If I thought about it, maybe I would have come up with an illustration that involved the Red Sea. But I'm talking about Olga's pool, and you're not going to, you're going to just immerse yourself totally in the will of God. But God's going to give you a scuba, so you won't, you won't, uh, you won't drown. But I, that picture has helped me try to do that in my own life, and I hope some of that is helpful to you. So take this to heart. Uh, what have we seen? We've seen uh, verses. Uh, Six and seven, that believers in Christ should be spiritual quarterbacks, not spiritual running backs. And here's the fact, you know, crisis comes to everybody. If you're not having a crisis right now, you're probably just coming out of one or just about to go into one. So you need to kind of hammer some of these basic principles into your life, Caitlin, because you're going to have a crisis hit you. And if you live to be old enough as I am, you're going to see a bunch of them. You're going to see some of your best friends die on you. And you're going to see some of your best friends suffer some really difficult things, and you hurt so badly for them. And you pray for them and try to encourage them. And But it's just sometimes it hurts me watching other people suffer more than when it's me dealing with something. I'm going to kind of handle that better than seeing Debbie watch me with some some problem dealing with that. So uh, the fact is we're, we're not bulletproof. We're going to experience crises in this fallen world. The challenge is we've got to elect... You know, to be spiritual quarterbacks, not spiritual running backs. Running backs fail to see God's presence or they doubt it or they second guess it. Spiritual quarterbacks recognize God's presence. They kind of lean into the pool of God's will, as it were, even while they continue to express intelligent concern, take appropriate actions. Okay, so let's have a word of prayer. Father, this is very analytical information that needs to be applied in a therapeutic, very practical way. And I I just trust your Holy Spirit who inspired this text will take this truth and apply it to each believing heart because uh, my feeble attempts to try to apply this uh, won't work for some people. They need your your direct uh, enlightenment on exactly how they need to think about embracing your will and your presence even when they're in intense pain, even when they're, they've suffered horrific loss. Um, and uh, we thank you that we've got so much to look forward to on the other side. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's Christ in the sky, and he's really up there. But in the meanwhile, this book of First Peter so uh, patiently and graciously encourages us to keep on trusting and obeying you even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason we can think of for doing that and just build a battleship of the soul in each one of our hearts, whether it's a 
uh, a young man like Henry or an older man like Brad or anybody in between uh, so that we can kind of ride out the storm and that uh, we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you might exalt us at the proper time and that you teach us the techniques we need to know personally to be able to cast or throw or pass our anxieties to you because um, we care, we matter to you and, and what we are doing and what we're suffering matters to you. We're so thankful for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.